0: Welcome to Sanctus Church. For those of you who are gathering in person, online, or even watching later in the week, we're so glad you decided to spend some time with us as we continue to journey and discover and learn about what it means to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're, you're watching or you're listening and you're exploring Christianity and asking questions. We're so glad you're here Reach out to us. We'd love to help you in this journey. Uh, And our prayer and our hope is that you would find this to be a safe place to discover who Jesus really is. For those of you who don't know, my name is Nathan, and I have the privilege of serving as the Bowmanville site pastor. And I'm going to share some thoughts with you this morning on some texts. You know, we just came out of an amazing series that Pastor John led on the book of Philemon where he talked about the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation uh, amongst some very difficult topics. And if you didn't listen to that series, you should go back and listen to it. But I don't know about you, but this is the first week of March and March for most of us marks the one year mark of when this pandemic really became real. It was March of last year that Ontario first declared a state of emergency and and many of us experienced our first lockdown. And what a year it's been. Illness and death on a large global scale, lockdowns, businesses really struggling, some businesses innovating and completely changing their direction. I don't know if online shopping will ever be the same again. For many of us, our fast-paced, busy lives came to screeching halts and we had to learn how to uh, discover who we are in a different way, but also as families, we had to learn how to connect in a different way. Many of us pulling out terrible board games like Sorry, family relationships breaking down from terrible board games like Sorry, marriages struggling, some even crumbling, Other other marriages strengthening, hundreds of individuals taking the marriage course in our church alone. Social isolation, mental illness, having to walk through things we've never had to walk through before and dealing with things we've never dealt with before. I don't know what images or memories come to mind when you think about this past year, but I I can guarantee there's probably been some high highs and some low highs lows. Now, when you reflect on these low lows, these moments of frustration, of anger, of grief, the the question that comes to mind is, what do we do with those feelings? What do we do with those emotions? You know, a a mentor of mine always says, emotions are buried alive, that we can't just stuff them down. In fact, this past year, I was reading a, a book by Dr. Henry Cloud called Boundaries for Leaders. And it's a book where he draws this correlation between neurology and cognitive function and a leader. And it's all about how to live in a way, to set up boundaries in a way as a leader that help your mental health. In this book, he, he spends some time talking about the 2008 market crash. And as a as a consultant to major businesses, he, he says he felt like an ER doctor in the midst of this epidemic. Having conversations with different business leaders, at one point in the book, he, he recalls this, this uh, conversation he had with a, a senior leader within a Wall Street firm. And, and the leader says this, and I, I'm gonna read this quote. "'I have been in the industry for 25 years "'and have always been at the top. "'I have won every award in the industry. "'I have never had a problem with confidence. "'This is weird but now I have trouble picking up the phone. I just sit there at times and stare at the computer screen. What stood out to me is that this is kind of the elite of the elite of being able to handle stress and deal with stress, the master of compartmentalization. Yet they realized in this moment that as much as they wanted to stuff stuff down, it was still spilling over and impacting them on a day-to-day basis when it comes to this pandemic, when it comes to the lows, when it comes to the the feelings that we have, what do we do? What what do we do with the frustration that you might have towards the government when you're forced to close your business, but other businesses stay open? What do you do with the depression and loneliness of of social isolation when relationships with family members and friends are, are not the way they used to be? What do you do with the feelings of anger you have towards the injustice in the world and and particularly even coming out of this last series, the the inequality or the the seemingly increase in human trafficking? What do we do when this fast-paced life comes from a, a complete halt and we're forced to rethink our identity? What do we do with the grief that we experience? Well, Today launches a new series called Real Talk Honest Prayer. And for the next three weeks, we're going to have different teachers looking at the Psalms as we pull out this framework on how we can enter into and experience a deep, honest prayer life. For those of you who don't know, the Psalms is one of the 66 books in the Bible. It's one of the larger books, and it's a, it's a collection of poems and songs meant to both encourage the faith, but also to uh, bring to life human emotions like sorrow, fear, and joy. They're written by multiple different authors and have different perspectives. Now, this is not a series on the Psalms. If you're looking to learn more about the Psalms, you can go back to 2015 when Pastor John did a series unpacking the nine different genres of the Psalms. It was called Let the Light In, and you can find that on our webpage. Now, this is about as followers of Jesus Christ, how can we pull out application and experience a deep and honest prayer life with Jesus? Today, we're gonna to be looking at Psalm 73. Now, let me just encourage you, Because the Psalms are poetry, as I heard one speaker say, they're meant to be experienced as much as they are exposited. So as we teach on these Psalms and as you listen and learn, take time in your week to go back and read the Psalm. Spend time reflecting on it, meditating on it, even pray the Psalm back to God. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73, which is a psalm of Asaph. He's written 12 psalms, or 12 psalms are attributed to him. He was a a Levite, a a music leader within the temple during the time of David. Now, Psalm 73 traditionally is categorized as a wisdom psalm, but what's unique about this psalm is it's, it's not just didactical in nature. It's not just teaching in nature. In fact, it's it's much of a, a lament or a cry or a pouring out of the psalmist's heart. As one author says, the speaker is apparently poor, sick, resigned, suffering, and deeply unhappy. Before we jump into the psalm, would you just take a moment and just pray with me? Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this moment. We welcome you to search our hearts. We want to submit to your truth. And so would you guide us into truth as we read and unpack your word? We know that your word reads and unpacks our hearts. And so we want to receive what you have to say to us here in this moment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with them, uh, turn to Psalm 73, uh, because we're going to be jumping around to some verses. We're not going to read the whole thing, but you can pull them out on your phones as well. Psalm 73. Let's jump in. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right in the beginning here, these first three verses, the psalmist gives an overview of what the psalm is about. He's affirming the truth that yes, surely God is good. To Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. It's, it's not just the nation of Israel, but he's good to those who really love him. But then he addresses where his struggle, where his problem was. It was when he envied the arrogant and looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Now, in verses 4 to 12, he then unpacks what the prosperity of the wicked is. In verses 4 to 6, he talks about their physical health, that they have no struggles. Their bodies are, are healthy and strong They have everything they need. Furthermore, pride is their necklace. Now, when he says pride is their necklace, it's an image in prophetic literature of basically a self-satisfied attitude towards God. It's not only that the wicked have everything they need, they declare that they provided everything they need. They don't need God. In the next two verses, he talks about how the wicked are also willing to oppress others. That they have no problem not only boasting about what they have, but they're willing to oppress others to get it. But it gets even worse for the psalmist. In verses 9, 10, and 11, he, he looks at how the wicked actually even mock God. In verse 11, it says, How would, they, would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Wow. It's not only that they have everything that they need, that they're willing to oppress others, but they actually mock God and say, God, you really don't know how to live the best life. I do, we do. He concludes by saying, this is the wicked, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, initially you might think, so what's the problem? What's the problem with the wicked being so prosperous? Well, you see, the psalmist has Deuteronomy chapter 11 in mind, where God says to Israel, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, I am giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way I have commanded you. Essentially, God is saying, if you obey, blessings will follow. If you disobey, curses will follow. But what the psalmist is saying is when I look at life, when I look at the wicked, it seems to me they are more prosperous than I am. They are more blessed than I am. They are more carefree than I am. So then he says in verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands of innocence. Leads him to this question, why why am I doing this? Is, as one author says, it feels worthless to practice faithfulness. But beyond that, he says in verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Now the word afflicted in the Hebrew is closely connected to rebuke. It's this idea that not only do I seem to have these burdens in my life and the wicked seem to be more carefree, I actually have the rebuke of the Lord that I actually can't even enjoy the sin and the evil the way that maybe I wanted to earlier because you are continually correcting me. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans six eighteen when he says that we are slaves to righteousness, meaning we can no longer do what we used to do because internally there's this consciousness that's grieved. He says, it's not only that the wicked have carefree lives and my life doesn't seem to be carefree, it's that I'm actually also burdened by my own sin, so it leads him to the question is it worth it? Is it worth it? I don't know about you, but I've asked this question multiple times. I ask this question every time I go into a restaurant. You see, I'm a big foodie. I love food, I love cooking, and Every time I go into a restaurant, I'm always evaluating quality, quantity, and cost. I'm always trying to determine is what I'm ordering actually worth it. In fact, it's such a big deal for me that I actually have to look at menus ahead of time to begin to prepare to make this decision. I have little rules like I never order chicken because chicken's either cooked or not. I I often order something like a lamb that I think requires a little more skill on the chef's part. Is the pasta homemade or is it not? How is it cooked? Where is it from? There's this whole framework that goes into mind. In fact, I remember one time I was out with a friend when I was at a conference in Calgary and we went out to a nice fine dining restaurant and while we were there, it was one of our splurge nights. We were looking at the menu and I'll never forget the, the waitress comes along and she says, do you want the special? Naturally, I ask, what's the special? Well, the special is duck confit stuffed ravioli with poached strawberries, fresh peas, arugula in a white wine sauce. So yes, I remember because I'm weird about things like this. I remember useless information. I remember in that moment thinking, oh man, duck confit, that's a complicated thing to make. The pasta's homemade in house. This has gotta be something that's worth the cost. Well, we ordered it and I convinced my friend to order it. And when it came, there were six pieces of ravioli on my plate. (laughs) We laugh about it because we had to go out afterwards for a hamburger because we are so hungry still. That was a moment where I felt it wasn't worth it. But have you ever felt that way about your faith? Is Is it worth it? You know, maybe you're, you've had a year from hell and you're, you're coming into this moment and you're, you're frustrated and you're angry because you don't understand why you've lost your job when other people have been promoted. And, and you're praying and saying, God, don't you know I need to provide? I need to provide for my family. And, and God isn't providing a job and you're struggling and you've got other people praying and you can't understand why. Or maybe you're coming into this season and you've been burdened by your own sin and you're asking God to to deliver you from this sin, but you keep struggling and you're not sure why the freedom is there. And it's making you question whether not only is it worth it, is it even working? Or, Or maybe you're coming into this moment and, you know, this pandemic has just got you so spent, so discouraged that at this point, it's just easier to watch Netflix than it is to seek intimacy with God. Maybe you just feel so distant, you're wondering if it's even worth it. So what do we do with these feelings? Let's go back to the psalm. We come now to the the central verse, the, the central focus of the entire psalm, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what he says. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Did you catch that? until i entered the sanctuary of god now what does sanctuary mean to the temple it's the place where the israelites would go to connect with god but metaphorically in this psalm what it means is the presence of god as one author says to be close to god and god to him it's until he enters the presence of god <clears throat> but you see what he said before that when i tried to understand this it troubled me deeply Now the psalmist, he's in a really embittered state in verses 21 to 23, it talks about this. He says he's a brute beast before God, literally a monster before God. He's in a low spot. But in that low spot, he tries to understand it. He tries to reason himself out of it and he can't. And this is the thing that I think we need to understand is that there are moments in our lives where we want to try to reason our way forward out of how we're feeling and we can't. We actually need the presence of God to show up in our lives to deliver us from what we're struggling through. This is why we as a church believe experience is so important because there are moments where God shows up and drastically changes us and the way we see things. You see, when we talk about honest prayer, we're talking about entering into God's presence with all the emotion, with where we are at. Now, I want to talk about two hindrances that I think are important and were on my heart as I was wrestling through this text to entering into God's presence. The first is I want you to notice the shift from talking about God to talking to him. You see, the first half of this psalm, I talked about verse 17 being a hinge. uh, The author is talking about God. It's it's a non-personal way, but in the second half of the psalm from verse 17 onwards, he begins to talk to God. Listen to the difference. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them to ruin. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me with your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will take me into glory. Who do I have in heaven besides you? There is nothing I desire besides you. You isn't referenced once in a direct prayer towards God, but in the second half, he's talking to God. Here's one of the things I've learned about honest prayers is when we are embittered, when we are frustrated, when we are angry, it's easier to talk about the problem than to actually talk to the problem or to address it. That it's, it's easier to talk about God or talk about our situation to God, about God, rather than to actually talk to God. It's easier to talk about our emotions rather than to talk to God about the way we're feeling I love this part, this shift from talking about God to God. So I don't know where you're at. In in January, we as a Bowmanville community were talking about prayer. And one of the things that I shared with them that I think is important in this moment was an exercise I actually learned from a mentor at a young age that's helped me in times like this. And it's very simple. And I want to share it with you. If you carve out some time this week, sit down, whether you have a journal, whether you just pray. Start your time by this simple phrase, God, if I'm being completely honest, I feel. And then just let it flow, whatever, whatever comes. You might even want to say, God, if I'm being completely honest, I feel because of, and actually talk about what it is that's weighing you down, what it is that's impacting you. You know, when it comes to honest prayer, we need to make sure we're shifting from talking about God to actually talking to God. But the second thing I want to highlight is this idea of of recognizing the struggle, recognizing the stagger. If you go back to verse one and two, it says that God is good to Israel. But in verse two, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, the image the psalmist is giving is, this idea of stumbling. It's this idea of of staggering that he's on a journey walking forward and he begins to stumble. Now, Augustine says, what is it to stagger? Well, it's, it's to doubt. It's to doubt. It is a human experience to wrestle through doubt. I remember the first time I struggled with doubt. It was in 1993, game six of the conference finals of the LA Kings versus the Toronto Maple Leafs. And for those of you who don't know, this was a big game. It was when Wayne Gretzky high-sticked Doug Gilmore and Kerry Fraser refused to call a penalty. The Leafs lost that year. They lost the conference finals. Why was this a moment where I began to doubt? Well, I was born and raised in a home where you didn't have the option to cheer for another team other than the Toronto Maple Leafs. And every year, my dad managed to... Uh, instill in us this faith, this hope that this would be the year. This would be the year the Leafs would win the cup. Well, I remember that year was the first year I began to doubt. I began to struggle. I began to feel like I wonder if the Leafs will ever win the cup. Leafs fans, you'll you'll understand that struggle. Here we have a psalm where the author staggered. Now what's key about this is that he's not just a nobody. He's a Levite and he serves in the temple. But in fact, he's actually one of the three key worship leaders that David sets aside. So he's a leader in the community of faith. And yet he's struggling with doubt. Doubting God is good. Doubting God is actually good to Israel. You see, a part of faith is to doubt. It's understanding that that if we didn't actually have a faith, there wouldn't be anything to doubt, that it's a normal human experience to go through moments or seasons where we struggle with doubt. Listen to what Timothy Keller says, faith without doubt is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. As I was preparing this talk, I just had a strong sense that some of you actually think God is angry with your doubt. That some of you actually think God is angry with you, that he's disappointed that you've struggled the way you have this past year. And as I was praying about that that burden and talking with a friend this this uh, passage came to mind, and I want to leave this image with you, if, if that's you. It's, it's a story about a guy named Thomas. It's found in the Gospel of John chapter 20. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples, and he's not there when Jesus first appears. And so the disciples, they tell him, and Thomas doesn't believe. Listen, listen to how John records it. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand in his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, imagine this moment, he looks at Thomas, and he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. See, Jesus approaches Thomas and he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't shame him. Instead, he meets him where he's at and he says, come, put your fingers here. Put your hand on my side. where are stabbed with a spear. If you want to know what the picture of god is towards your doubt look to the cross look look to the hands look to the side look to the cross where jesus poured out his love so that we could understand who he is Look to the sacrifice of God who who gave everything so that we could know him in relationship. You see, this is the gospel. This is what we believe, is that while we were Thomas in the room with the door locked, keeping Jesus out, that we, we were darkened in our mind, that we refused and wanted nothing to do with God. In fact, if it wasn't for God reaching into our lives, coming into the room and awakening us to our need for him, awakening us to the reality of his existence, none of us would be able to ask Ask Jesus to come and do a work in our lives. The gospel is that while we're running from God, He runs to us. He awakens us by His grace and His mercy. And so if you're if you feel like God is angry at your human weakness, at your frailty, remember that the gospel is that He steps into that and meets us where we are at. So Maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe you, this is you. Maybe you're wrestling and feeling like Jesus, God is angry with your doubt. I would invite you to just to take a moment, even now, just pray this simple prayer found in Mark 9. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Or maybe you're here and you're listening or you're watching and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been waiting for all your doubts to be cleared up. Maybe you thought you needed to get all your ducks in a row before you made that decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you need to pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, reach out to us. We'd love to pray with you or even just take a moment right now and just pray, God, I recognize that I've been running from you. That I actually chose how to live my life the way I wanted. And now I wanna come. I wanna turn from my wicked ways. I wanna turn from my sin and I wanna acknowledge your grace and your mercy. Would you come into my life? Again, if you prayed that prayer, please let us know. We would love to connect with you and support you. Here's the thing when it comes to the presence of God, it really matters. Why does it matter? We'll go back to verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Did you catch that? It's not an answer. It's a shift in the psalmist's perspective. You see, God's presence brings godly perspective. When we enter into the presence of God, he begins to shape and renew and transform our mind so that we see our situations and we see our lives through his eyes. There's two perspectives I want to briefly talk about and, and close with these two that change as we enter into God's presence. The first is he gives us an eternal perspective. The psalmist says, and then I understood their final destiny. That's, first of all, that is judgment. You know, he says in verse 24 that those who trust in him will be taken to glory, that when we trust in Jesus, we'll spend eternity in the presence of God. And those who have chosen to reject God will be eternally separated from God. But it's not just eternity, it's actually an eternal perspective on this life now. You know, he he talks about this idea of, uh, sorry, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter six, where he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That when we enter into the presence of God and he gives us an eternal perspective, it becomes a lens with which we see this world. We understand that our suffering in this life is temporary that there's a moment to this, but that we were actually made for eternity. My wife and I have been thinking about this perspective shift a lot as we prepare to welcome baby number three. I I remember when we had our first, people would come up to us in the newborn days and would say, this is such a short season, treasure every moment. And I'd be like, how do you treasure three or four wake ups in a night? How do you treasure the diapers we're going through? But now as we prepare for our third, as we prepare for the sleepless nights again and the diapers, we know these moments go so fast. So when you enter into the presence of God with our honest prayers, God will begin to shape our perspective. And maybe you need to ask him this week, God, give me an eternal perspective. Remind me that I was made for eternity beyond this life and help me to see this life through the lens of eternity. Now, the second thing that God shifts our perspective on, is on what is good. Go back again to verse number one. He says, surely God is good to Israel. But what does the psalmist say is the hang up for his trouble? Well, it's the prosperity of the wicked. And he envied that. You see, the the psalmist was defining good in the context of material blessing. He was defining good through temporary things. but, But God never promises material blessings when we follow Him. God never even promises that we wouldn't experience suffering. What He does promise is that He will be with us. He promises His presence with us that He'll never leave us or forsake us. Now, again, this psalm is written by Asaph, who's a Levite. And and let me give you a brief history. The Levites are descendants of Levi. Levi was one of the 12 key leaders, one of the 12 tribes of Israel that when Israel came and became a nation, they took the land and they divided the land up amongst the 12 tribes. But when they came to the tribe of Levi, they actually didn't get any land. Instead, listen to what Joshua says. But the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance. You see, the Levites, God promised his presence to. What is the good you desire? What is the good that you desire in this season? You know, is it the job promotion? Is it the bigger house? Is it the new vehicle? Is it the vacation just to get away somewhere other than my house? What is the good that you are desiring? And none of these things are wrong. But when it comes down to the deep, honest desire and probing of our hearts, what is the good? See, for the psalmist, the good shifts and change. Look at verse 25. He says, There is nothing I desire besides you. And at the end of the psalm, he closes by saying, as for me, it is good to be what? To be near God. That actually the goodness I want, the good life is a life where I experience the presence of God. Listen to a quote by Tozer. I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything to do with religion. So so let me ask this question. What do you really want? When I meet with my spiritual mentors or spiritual directors, this is often a question that's brought back to me. What do you really want? And through the probing, through the asking of the questions, through the wrestling, I always come back to this conclusion where I just want the presence of God, that I want to know the creator of heaven and earth intimately, that I want to sit with him and I want to hear him speak. So let me put it to you. What do you really want? What is the good life? When we enter into the presence of God, he begins to give us a godly perspective. So let me encourage you this week. Shift your prayers from talking about God to talk to God. Remember the image of Jesus before doubting Thomas, inviting Thomas to actually come near in the midst of his doubt. And remember that as you enter in God's presence, ask Him to change your perspective. Ask Him to give you an eternal perspective and to remind you of the goodness of His presence. Let me pray for you. Lord, as we have wrestled through this psalm, it's not meant to dismiss the way we are feeling but it's meant to actually acknowledge those feelings and to bring them to you. None of the perspective shift actually minimizes the pain or the suffering we're going through. It just enables us to keep going because we see things differently. And so today, I just ask that across this entire church, that anyone who's listening in this moment, Lord, that you would actually birth in them, reawaken in them a hunger for your presence, maybe in a way they haven't experienced in a while, maybe not even since the moment where they first trusted in you. Would you stir in the hearts of our community an unsatisfying hunger for you and for intimacy with you? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Go in God's peace. We'll see you next week.